and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Over the past year, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has reinvigorated NATO as the presence of a major war on the European continent has highlighted the importance of collective defense. While NATO is not directly involved in the conflict, it has assumed a leading role in both coordinating aid to Ukraine and strengthening Europe's deterrence posture. The invasion has also prompted Finland and Sweden to apply for NATO membership, setting the stage for a potential enlargement in the months to come. At the same time, however, new challenges have emerged, including Russia's threat to use nuclear weapons, as well as the limitations of the Western defense industrial base. As the alliance looks ahead to its summit in Lithuania this summer, what are the major questions it will need to confront in this fundamentally altered security environment? So to discuss this and more, we're very pleased to have Vendetta Berti and Dave Catler with us on the podcast. Um, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be with you. All right. Very quick bios. Um, Vendetta is the head of policy planning in the office of the Secretary General of NATO. She is a foreign policy and security researcher, analyst, consultant, author, and lecturer. And Dave is NATO's Assistant Secretary General for Intelligence and Security. Prior to his appointment as Assistant Secretary General, he was a senior national and defense intelligence official of the United States. All right, rumor has it there's a ministerial going on as we're recording. Um, and maybe just to kick things off, just to hear from you both a little bit about the mood in the alliance. Um, you know, what, how are things looking? Um, what are the major nar narratives? What are the big issues that the alliance is focused on um, at this moment? Vendetta, maybe we can start with you. Sure. Well, I would say that uh, to start with the with your question about the mood, uh, it's a difficult one because I would say on the one hand, the mood is somber, right? Because we are approaching one year of this brutal and unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine. So there is a tremendous understanding of all the suffering and the incredible devastation that we've seen because of this conflict. So, so that's our starting point to reflect on all the horrors that we've witnessed. Uh, so, so I think that's important to acknowledge. At the same time, I think we also go uh, approach this almost one year milestone with a sense of uh, strength and resolve. I think one year later, the stakes of this conflict, of this war of aggression are even clearer. That's at least my sense. Uh, in this, in various senses, one of course we understand that uh, what is happening in Ukraine is, of course, first and foremost about um, Ukraine's right to self-defense and about their right to make their own foreign policy choices. They're about respect for their own territorial integrity and sovereignty. So, of course, it's a, it's it is about Ukraine. But we also understand very well, I think, a year into this war, that it is about what type of European security order we're looking at. It is about whether we want our uh, European security order based on shared norms and and common respect for sovereignty, territorial integrity, and those basic principles that really for decades have kept um, this part of the world relatively stable and predictable. So we understand that those are the stakes. And I would even go a little bit further and say we understand that 
the stakes of a potential uh, game changer in Ukraine would go way beyond the Euro-Atlantic theater. And they will send a signal to potential competitors and to authoritarian countries worldwide and will tell and will basically send a very the very simple but disconcerting message that might is right and we're returning to a world of spheres of influence. So we understand that this there's a lot riding to, to the conf- on this conflict. Um, so that's about the mood, that in one word, what does it mean? It means that one year later, the, the issues we have on our agenda continue to be those that you were expect, would expect to be at the agenda of, uh, of a NATO defense ministry. We're talking about how do we continue to support Ukraine uh, in, in exercises right to self-defense? How can we... Uh, how can we continue to implement the adaptation of our defense and defense deterrence and defense posture at speed, at scale, and at pace to keep uh, to keep uh, uh, with this changing security environment? We're talking about how do we ramp up our industrial capacity so that we can keep up in terms of the production um, of ammunition and other important equipment that we need for our deterrence and defense and to continue to support Ukraine. So. In that sense, it's not surprising what's on our agenda, but it's very much, uh, I think, the right topics and those that will ultimately determine whether we are responding effectively to this challenge, to the challenges of the security environment. Yeah, you know, I just add, I think, to pick up on a couple of Benedetta's points, um, but maybe be a little more glass half full, because I don't know if I'd open with it. It's difficult. I think people are very clear-eyed and sober about where we are. Um, now that we're a little less than a year since the beginning of the war on February 24th last year. There really has been uh, very, very strong solidarity, not just for this past 11 months, but even in the months before the war uh, that led to many of the preparations that the Alliance took to enhance its, its defenses and its deterrence posture. That really has led to significant, sustained and growing support to Ukraine in its defense. Yes, as Benedetta said and also to, to a, a real sense of urgency. The time is of the essence right now. So I think to the mood, um, that's a key factor in it. I just very, very quickly though, take a step back and, and remind that we have these ministerials, this one, the defense ministerial that's underway now, and also a foreign ministerial to come as milestones to that July summit in Vilnius. And in that, I think you're going to see the alliance uh, return to significant discussion at the leader level about the adaptations that the alliance has taken, the new strategic concept that was agreed in Madrid last year. They're going to do that in what NATO calls the 360 degree approach. So just think um, not overly focused on any one region or any one adversary or issue, but to really take a comprehensive and strategic approach. Um, You should expect to see a lot of discussion about Eastern flank, changes and reinforcements for deterrence and defense posture, as Benedetta said, uh, but also a whole lot of discussion about responses to terrorism, about the ongoing missions that NATO still has in Iraq and in the Balkans. And then I think finally, um, you should expect to see a lot of discussion about progress that has been made on the political commitments that were reached in Madrid, again, last year at the summit in, in May of 2022. So it's, it's not just Ukraine. Um, it's about all of these things at the strategic level coming together, but certainly Ukraine um, is a major and significant factor in all of these discussions. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, I I I I'm a, I feel a little nostalgic, frankly, hearing what you're saying because I 
I know these issues so well. And I was a defense planner there. And I uh, just, uh, it's times like this where I wish I was back there. It's very meaty agenda. But I will say that I went through the SecGen's uh, press conference uh, transcript. And there's a couple of very interesting gems in there that are a surprise. I mean, there's there's the normal Ukraine and this kind of thing. But but there's a couple of things that he mentioned that, uh, number one, I'm glad he did. I'm glad that NATO's working on it. But I was surprised that it was given um, the highlight by being in the SecGen's press conference. Uh, and I, so my, my question for you is, uh, is kind of if, if there's a backstory that you can tell us about, about why suddenly this has been raised in prominence. And that's the two things. One is the... Uh, the, the cell that's been developed to uh, try to protect uh, critical infrastructure under the undersea. That's not a new issue, protecting the you know pipelines and communications cables. Um, you know, we know those are a threat and we've seen uh, the Russians over the past year or so making moves that appeared like they were kind of interested in that. Uh, but now it's, it's highlighted uh, in the section's press conference, there's a cell that's gonna work with industry to try to figure out how can we protect these better. I mean, that's all logical. That's all great. But is there something that really prompted this? Is there something that's popped up that uh, that the priority has been raised? That's the first thing. And then secondly, at the space, uh, the new space initiative with the satellites, the commercial, the national and commercial um, owned uh, satellites uh, constellation. That's interesting, too. Uh, NATO has always talked a good game about space, space as a domain. But now suddenly it's mentioned in the section's uh, press briefing uh, that, that there's actually a pretty big initiative going on about that. Um, we, we, we know how space was is important in Ukraine for, with helping them with ISR and comms and this kind of thing that the U.S. particularly is having to help provide. So, so could you give us the backstory on why now, why this, these two things have uh, reached some prominence? I'm happy about it, but I did find that was interesting that they popped up in his press conference. Well, I think two things um, on that. I mean, you've raised two two issues. So let me touch on them, and then I'm sure Benedetta is going to want to add some some points, especially about NATO's resilience agenda. But I think why now? I think both are um, longstanding efforts, as you've said, that are now reaching a level of maturity where where we are about to take some major steps on both issues better protection of critical undersea infrastructure, and also to seize this moment to take advantage of some of the major changes that are coming in satellite uh, availability, and especially in my area in terms of satellite or space-based reconnaissance capabilities. So first on the undersea infrastructure, I, I think certainly a piece of this is the observation of um, the attacks on, on the Nord Stream pipeline and, and what that brings home in terms of awareness about both the vulnerability and the need to protect critical infrastructure in the undersea domain. Uh, there is increasing reliance on that for both telecommunications and for energy. And so it's, as you said, it's, it's always been on people's minds, but now you see it really brought home uh, just within the last year. And so um, for me, part of it is about that observation uh, during the war, but I think the bigger issue here is about the placement of undersea infrastructure within a broader resilience agenda. And again, I'm sure Benedetta is going to want to talk about. On the satellites, um, we actually had a press conference yesterday before the SecGen's press conference to talk about um, this initiative that NATO is now embarking on. And what we've observed is that 
there will be between now and 2030, there, there is projected to be about a five-fold increase in satellites on orbit and a very substantial number of, law, of launches in that period of time. Um, the pervasiveness and availability of space-based intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance is, is gonna rapidly climb within this next decade. And what we're trying to do is to be sure that we are first able to take advantage of it. Secondly, properly organized in order to place the right demands on those systems to satisfy our information needs. And then finally, and I argue almost uh, most importantly, to do so efficiently and effectively when we issue those requirements. And so what we've described to go behind what the SecGen is discussing is the development of something that we're calling the, the, the Aquila uh, constellation or network. NATO is not gonna build its own satellites. What NATO is going to do is to build the operational capacity and the technical capacity to more efficiently and effectively task information uh, to be sent to the Alliance derived from space-based sensors. That's the direction that we're that we're moving in in that. So again, I think I think what you're seeing is these things just come to this level. Um, it's also on the SecGen's agenda because uh, as of yesterday, we had 17 nations. Hopefully, we'll have more that it, that will sign a letter of intent during the defense ministerial to agree to participate in this construct. And uh, a few of them, in fact, will will contribute resources. Most notably and early on, uh, Luxembourg, 16 and a half million euros to provide the initial financial investment to get this effort off the ground. Yeah, that's so, been their um, that's been their MO over time is to they don't have a very large military, but they've got a purse that they put towards space-based things. So that makes sense. Well, that's right. And and especially I pick up on the latter part of your statement there, which is that uh, I mean, hopefully people are aware of this, but Luxembourg is a spacefaring nation. They are making significant investments in space capabilities for themselves, and they are seeking to enhance those investments to prompt those investments across the alliance as well. By them often taking the first step, as you see here, right? Uh, something very much appreciated, right? Vendetta, I'll let you chime in too, but like just to add to, to to maybe tee up the resilience kind of discussion. I mean, I think when a lot of us are looking at Russia's tactics and understanding kind of how degraded they've been in the conventional domain, a lot of us are talking about how their tactics will evolve and that they'll place even greater reliance on some of their non-conventional tools. So part of that will be at the nuclear kind of strategic level, but a lot of that will be at the sub kind of the hybrid level. And I would imagine that's where kind of the resilience piece plays a major role. Um, is that kind of the, the 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 nature of the challenge that NATO sees? And is that, did that give um, some life to, for example, the underwater sea cable kind of cell? I mean, I think we're all expecting that Russia will double down on those types of hybrid threats. People are highlighting the risks to underwater, the underwater sea cables, but um, um, in the cyber domain, even potentially the use of chemical biological weapons, like those types of hybrid threats. Is that, did that give a little extra push on um, elevating this uh, on, on the NATO agenda? Well, I, I would, I would say that, uh, that over the last few years, really, we have been 
placing more and more emphasis on the issue of resilience at large. And that is because uh, we do observe this uh, uh, trend of rising strategic competition. That is the background where everything is taking place. And we do see more and more um, potential adversaries and competitors really using all the tools they have at their disposal. And so that's the political, the economic, the technological, and the military, um, and using them in an integrated, more and more integrated way. So in that context, our resilience becomes more and more important. It becomes more and more important because of the uh, already underlying great dependency that our militaries have on civilian infrastructure in terms of their mobility, in terms of enabling their communication. So there is a very um, there is a very concrete need to have safe and secure digital infrastructure, physical physical infrastructure, uh, uh, commercial satellite communication. All of these are are very much essential to our military's function today. So that's one element, and that's the more classic element of resilience. And we've been thinking about that a lot, especially over the last decade, as we are uh, resetting our posture, our deterrence and defense posture. But I would say in the broader context of strategic competition, we see also more and more issues that traditionally we did not think of as particularly germane to security policy become more and more relevant. And that is about energy policies is a very clear example, but more and more we're looking at what are critical dependencies, what are vulnerabilities, how how is our critical infrastructure, our supply chains, how can it be used by potential adversaries and competitors to undermine our security? And so that discussion is been quite active of NATO for the past few years. And we've really expanded the number of tools that the Alliance has to support alliance, to support allies in building their own national resilience, but also to think about collect resilience in a collective framework when it comes to linking it to our deterrence and defense. So I think that's the broader framework in which we're thinking about it. Of course, also observing what is happening in Ukraine and the use of asymmetric or unconventional tactics, but it is broader than that, I would say. Um, and that is why in the, in the strategic concept that allies agreed a few months ago, resilience is really identified as the strategic enabler of all NATO's core tasks. And it's examined in a pretty broad way. So again, we're talking about the nuts and bolts, the roads and the bridges, but we're also talking about 5G and we're talking more and more about what are energy policies, And of course, who owns our critical infrastructure, who invests in our critical infrastructure. So it's a very broad discussion. Within that broad discussion and the broad resilience agenda, I think there is no no question, and David already mentioned it, that uh, the Nord Stream sabotage has also sharpened the focus on, uh, well, a very very simple fact that is that our societies depend on a small number of undersea communication cables. Those are essential for our trade, they're essential also for our security. And NATO already has played a role when it comes to patrolling, monitoring areas that matter to maritime security. But the question is, is there more we can do in terms of coordination? Is there more we can do in terms of strengthening our ties with the private sector? So I think some of these questions are being answered also through this new cell that the Secretary General discussed, but also through, and I'll stop here, uh, the fact that we have put resilience and and also more specifically critical infrastructure is one of the topics that we want to explore more in the context of the NATO-EU dialogue. And I think that's also important because here there is a potential win-win. 
Let me follow up by asking at the other end of the spectrum then on the nuclear side. So obviously it's wonderful to hear all of the thought that's being given to the to the asymmetric, to the hybrid threats, because as we're talking about, you know, I think as Russia's degraded conventionally, that's where it's going to have to go. They're going to have to double down on these non-conventional tools. And in addition to the asymmetric is going to be the, these, the nuclear threats and um, kind of anticipating that Russia will increasingly have to rely on its nuclear weapons, including its non-strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, and it, it kind of some of the work that we've done has warned about, you know, that the more vulnerable Russia feels kind of the more quickly they might try to play the nuclear card. And so it could potentially shorten the pathway to nuclear war. You know, NATO as an alliance has not had to prioritize the nuclear risk for a very long time. And I wonder, you know, it, what, what if you could characterize or some of the thinking, the discussions around the nuclear issues and how might NATO, how NATO might have to adjust to this new threat environment. Yeah, I think I'll go first on this one and and give you the threat perspective. Um, and then, as you know, uh, there's a lot of work underway to think about what the policy implications are and what the future might hold. So I think that the first thing we have to address here is what's the view on the weapons of mass destruction threat from Russia? Um, look, I'd say despite the threats that we hear, we don't see Russia taking any physical actions on the nuclear front they give allies cause to change our own strategic deterrence posture. Now that's a pretty strong statement and a really important one. We also don't assess that Putin has made a decision to use nuclear or any other chemical, biological or radiological weapons at this time. Now that said, Russia's threatening rhetoric is still dangerous and very irresponsible. And I think that's also really important to communicate to everybody. It's irresponsible for Russia or any nuclear power to even broach that uh, issue in this context, this context being a losing war of choice that is horribly uh, executed, grossly illegal, uh, not just in terms of international law, but really in terms of what we see emerging from the battlefield as areas are liberated in the form of what seems to be systemic rape and murder and torture. Um, so it's it's quite a thing to be making these statements about potential nuclear weapons use as an escalatory threat. But it also reflects, as, as you've alluded to, the fact that Russia's conventional military power is now largely tied down in Ukraine and has suffered considerable losses, losses that, that may take years for them to be able to reconstitute. And the strategic forces are not uh, touched by the conflict. So I think it, it's pretty logical that, that after the war ends, um, we may see um, heightened nuclear rhetoric and maybe even some, some nuclear activity, um, but we have to see what that future holds. We need to be prepared for it. But let me also say from a threat perspective that of course, any use of nuclear weapons by Russia would fundamentally change the nature of the conflict. I mean, it might even change the nature of the whole international situation. And it, and it would have unprecedented severe consequences for Russia as well, if they were to take that action. Everybody knows that a nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought. NATO does not seek confrontation with Russia. As you've said, we're not a combatant in the war between Russia and Ukraine. And NATO is doing everything we can to prevent Russia's war from escalating and becoming even more deadly, including in the strategic domain. Uh, so I'm gonna stop there and turn over to Benedetta. 
Yeah, no, I have very little to add because I think that is the framework that we have that we have consistently put forward, and it is the right one. It is about on the one hand reiterating that NATO remains vigilant, reiterating that there is a continuous monitoring of the security of the security environment, continuous threat assessment. So, of course, uh, the alliance is taking every statement and nuclear cyber rattling absolutely seriously as it should. Uh, those threats are taken seriously. Uh, at the same time, uh, as David said, there is at this stage, NATO has not seen any changes in Russia's nuclear posture that would cause NATO to adjust its own posture. So it is really about remaining observant, uh, continuing to, to maintain the situational awareness that we need, uh, thanks also to, uh, to the fact that we have, uh, over the years, really boosted the intelligence function within the alliance, which I think is really, really important to mention. Uh, which we'll come back to, for sure. <laughs> And, and we and and we continue and of course as 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 David said again there is we are in what is a the the most significant security crisis that we've seen in generations on the European continent so we are extremely vigilant and extremely um, cognizant that uh, the worst of a court and the wars of a life of their own and they and it's very difficult to predict in advance exactly what would happen when you're in the fog of the battlefield right so that's why you need to remain vigilant and that's what nato is doing uh, and of course as part of that there is a there is a broader uh, redefinition and protest sort of the of military adaptation and resetting of our own defense and deterrence posture broadly that continues to be based, uh, as you know, on, th on, the, on the same pillars. So it's conventional, it's nuclear, and it's missile defense. And that remains the way we look at um, a deterrence and defense. Yeah, I think there'll be lots of, I mean, just continued questions and thinking about a world without arms control, if indeed kind of the, we don't find a replacement for new start, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure these are all big questions that NATO will be grappling with in the coming years. But Jim, I know you, you had a question. Uh, just a, just a quick question. And first of all, thanks to both of you. Uh, you as Benedetta said, this is something you all presented very well, the, the uh, NATO position uh, and particularly NATO position on nuclear vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine right now. And the, no sign of you know anything happening in uh, in the Russian rocket forces to make us think blah blah you know so thank you very much for that but I think there is some on the outside here and I'm hoping on the inside too some thinking about the role of nuclear deterrence uh, now that we've we're we are confronted with an aggressor who has put a nuclear card on the table as a way to deter the West. Okay, so I'm not talking NATO right now specifically, but but we have now found uh, and others have found that just laying the card publicly on the table uh, in this way uh, uh, is it is is to deter can by the Russians can deter the West, um, and so the question then becomes: uh, there will be times, perhaps in the future, where we can't allow ourselves to be deterred by that card being played like that that the West or NATO might need to be able to uh, already have a deterrent posture that would say, if you lay that card on the table, we're gonna lay this card on the table. Uh, in other words, right now, when you look at what NATO has in terms of nuclear deterrence, understanding that this is a very nuanced thing at NATO versus the three nuclear allies, but but it's nuclear sharing, which is mainly symbolic about extended, de extended deterrence and the US 
involvement uh, in terms of the nuclear umbrella for Europe and is based on uh, an ally flying a, a plane with a B-61 bomb on it. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a little quaint. And so if, if you are, if we're looking at a new era where we're gonna have an adversary who now feels free to lay a card on the table to deter us, if we, if we, if we are not trapped by that, that, by that card being played, or, or trying to deter that card from being played, you would think that, and again, this is really a question for the United States, but I think NATO has got to have, think about this too, which is there comes a point where we've got to have a better deterrent or a more credible deterrent than a Belgian F-16 with a B-61 on it being flown into Russian airspace. I mean, there, we, I think there's got to be harder thought given to nuclear deterrence now. And so that's just on the outside. I, I, I don't know if you're talking about that on the inside. Probably not. You've got other things going on. But just what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I'd just give you an immediate reaction and say, I, I challenge the question a bit because I don't believe we're deterred. And let me give you my evidence. First, we made very clear that we are prepared to defend every inch of allied territory notwithstanding okay. these threats. Yep. I don't want to mislead. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm really talking about the West in this case. Well, uh, so am I. You know, okay. Yeah, yeah, so am I. Okay. So I still stand by my first point. The second thing I would say is that we have pushed back on the rhetoric because as I've described, it is rhetoric. There is not corresponding action that we've observed. Third, uh, we have continued responsible nuclear activities to include testing and exercises. Uh, of the nuclear powers within the alliance. Right. Fourth, we have in fact continued the aid to Ukraine. Lethal and non-lethal aid is being provided by a great number of allies. In fact, more than 50 nations uh, are in the Ukraine Defense Contact Group and continuing to provide aid, notwithstanding that that was one of the red lines that the Russians identified and linked to potential nuclear escalation. There has been continued solidarity and support to the end states that are envisioned by Ukraine, which would also represent a significant crossing of red line from a Russian perspective, specifically full restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. All of that continues in the face of this rhetoric, these potential threats and that potential escalation. This is why I say um, we're not deterred. We're very clear-eyed and sober about the situation. And I think the Alliance as a whole and the allies within it have responded in a very clear and firm way to these attempts at deterrence. But I just don't see the effect of the rhetoric going all the way to the extreme that you framed in the question. And I understand that. And I, I appreciate you laying all that out and, and I agree. But I will say that decision making in Washington certainly is slowed down uh, and as it should be. And I'm not saying that we should uh, become nuclear warriors here, but 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 it is having an effect. This fear of escalation is a fear of escalating to a nuclear exchange. And that kind of fear has an impact on decision makers as they look at providing jet aircraft or tanks or or, uh, or attackums or whatever it might be, this fear of escalation, as, as it should be. Um, and so my, my concern is not something happening today um, in terms of, uh, of, of, of uh, you know, of, of deterrence. It's the future where um, 
where that card could be played in a much more serious way that Putin has not to date, as you point out. But it's something that I think suddenly has become much more of a real concern in a planner's mind that it might have been a few years ago when it was the unthinkable thing. Now it's not now as you begin to plan again, this isn't the future as you begin to to deal with an aggressor who has a nuclear capability. This idea that 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 adversary would not would not use a nuclear weapon because that was so unthinkable. Uh, that's that has been that's gone away a bit. And so our deterrence it, to me seems to need to be a stronger, more uh, clear eyed deterrence that uh, to an aggressor in the future. So I agree with what you're saying based on today, and 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 I and I salute that. Uh, there's a lot of us on the outside who are beating that drum in the press constantly about how that nuclear uh, saber rattling is not uh, impacting us, and we've got to be strong, et cetera. So we're all beating that drum. But I tell you, there's a lot of discussion about it, and I think it's something we have to think about in the future when we deal with an aggressor who might very seriously uh, play, a, uh, play a, put a car on the table that might deter us from doing something very important that we need to do, but we find ourselves deterred because that card has been played. Yeah, I think the only other point too is you let you know you talked about um kind of the consensus that Ukraine needs to restore its territorial integrity and my sense is that that's not a foregone conclusion or that there's not consensus about that and i think you know obviously western resolve and cohesion has been tremendous throughout this conflict but there's still potential bumps in the road and i do think that kind of uh, how long Ukraine keeps fighting, how much of its territory it recovers, whether it's the February 24th line, whether it's all of East Ukraine, and certainly Crimea is another topic. So I I mean, I do think that this risk of escalation, um, that that fear has driven a lot of division over what the appropriate end state. I know it's clear in the minds of Ukrainians, that's for sure. Um, but I think there's more disagreement and debate about what um, what our U.S. And, and perhaps Western vision of that end state would be. But Vendetta, and then I want to take us away from the, 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 the this risk of escalation to actually the risks of a long war, um, mm -hmm. because that is now something I worry a lot about. But Vendetta, if you wanted to jump in, please do. Well, no, I just wanted to to to, to say that there is no. To me, it's not necessarily a division. It is about finding a balance between different strategic objectives that are very uh, important and need to remain central to all decision making. At least that's my the way I look at it. And on the one hand, if I look at it from a NATO perspective, it's clear that it is not that there is a clear nature. NATO is not party to this war, and NATO does not have an interest in. Uh, uh, or it is absolutely determined to prevent an, a further escalation. An, an all-out NATO-Russia war would benefit no one and it would have very serious uh, negative repercussion, I think, for uh, for the European security order as we know it. So, of course, that's, that, that's a strategic goal. The other strategic goal, and it's what we talked about before, is to ensure that Ukraine is able to uh, exercise its right to self-defense, as enshrined in Article 51 of the UN Charter, not just because it is the right thing to do, but also because it is absolutely in our strategic interest when it comes to our overarching interest in a sustainable, uh, predictable, peaceful European security order. So these two objectives are very important and they drive the decision-making of allies. Uh, clearly, there are times where that requires more negotiations, more discussions, and I think that's the right way to look at it. It's not so much about tensions, it's about balancing different 
strategic objectives, which at times can provide some type of policy conundrum. But I think the way this has been, this circle has been square over the last years has been through, and that's one of the functions of NATO, I would say, through consultations, through uh, allied political, through maintaining allied political unity. And that's why our support for Ukraine has evolved. If you look one year back and you see where we are now, there's been a dramatic, I think, evolution as the as the battlefield dynamics have evolved. And we went from, from initial provision of light anti-tank weapons to provision of air defense. We went from air defense now talking about armored vehicles and battle tanks. The discussion is how do you reconcile the strategic objectives, respond to the reality on the ground, and preserve both the viability of a Ukraine of a Ukrainian uh, sovereign state, but also uh, but also maintain internal unity, maintain cohesion, and avoid escalation. It's much easier said than done, but I think all these things are true at the same time. That's why it's and that's why decision making is that's why it's a difficult decision making process. Yeah. No, all really important points. And maybe just to pull the thread on the, the reality on the ground. I mean, I think you know the, the front lines haven't meaningfully changed in a, in several months. And I know you know can put an asterisk next to Bakhmut and Solidar and some of these places where very small Russian incremental gains at very high cost to the Russians. And so I think the reality or the possibility of a long war is really starting to settle in. And I wonder if you all could talk a little bit about um, the risks that you see associated with a long war. Like we've talked about the defense industrial base and whether we're up to being able to, I mean, I think Ukraine is shooting more ammunition than we can provide, you know, at, at th those types of dynamics. Um, and then I think that the other important piece for us to think through is obviously Putin thinks that he can wait the West out. I don't think that Putin actually has any real incentive to end this war. And so how does NATO, how do NATO member states credibly signal that they are in this for the long haul? I mean, I know President Biden talks about we're in it as long as it takes. Other Western leaders have said the same things. But that's kind of rhetorical support or, you know, th th those are in, in, in words, those are the signals we're sending. But are there other things we could do to more credibly commit to demonstrate to Putin that NATO and NATO member states are really truly in this for the long haul? And I guess maybe what I'm poking at a little bit is the 2%. Um, and whether or not there is actually a serious uh, discussion in NATO about raising the 2% perhaps at the um, the summit this summer. Maybe I can give it a, I can, I can start by saying that, first of all, I, I agree with the, with the general assessment that it is, um, we have to, I, again, I, I always say, and I think it's it's important to come from a place of humility where we look at evolving battle dynamics. I do not know what will happen, but I do know from a policy planning perspective, which is where I sit, that we need to make sure that we are ready if we if this war continues over the long period. So preparing in terms of strategic culture, mindset, uh, planning, everything for a long war, I think, is uh, is prudent, while of course uh, stressing, and I think the Secretary General also stressed this today in his press conference, that it is absolutely important to step up support now because these weeks and months can have a very um, critical or very important impact on the longer term development of events on the ground. And again, if we're talking about an eventual uh, conflict that ends with some type of political uh, solution, we know that we need to, to put Ukraine in a place where uh, it, it is 
uh, it comes to the negotiating table from a place of strength. So retaking territory now, pushing back on the on the uh, upcoming, um, ongoing, I would say, developing Russian offensive is all very, very important. So, but with that said, we cannot become complacent or 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 relax or say this will not this will something that will be solved in the short haul. So what are we doing? I think first of all, as you were saying, the discussion on defense spending is very important. I would argue that discussion was already going to, was already taking place regardless and should have should have taken place regardless. But of course, there is greater urgency over the last year. And I think if you look at the, at the data, you see more than 350 billion that European allies and Canada have added since 2014 when it comes to defense spending. You're seeing more and more allies reaching the 2%, but you also see more and more allies considering that 2% really as a floor not as a ceiling when we talk about defense spending. And that's very important. So we have that uh, conversation, but it's more of a conversation. I think that's that's about showing up. Uh, that's about showing tell, right? So that is, that is, to me, already giving a signal of increased importance in, in defense and security. Uh, we're, we're working more and more on how to boost our industrial capacity. How do we replenish stockpiles of armaments and munitions? Um, here, NATO has a role to play, of course. We can, uh, through our NATO defense planning process, we, we can set targets, we can set standards, we can set goals that, that send a very clear demand signal to industry, which is what they need. Again, if it's for the long haul, they need to know that we are in it for the long haul. So we're doing that. We are, uh, and I think at this ministerial as well, we have uh, we have announced new multinational projects, which is one way through which NATO helps different allies procure, spend together, spend better, and achieve economies of scale. So that's another tool that we have. We have uh, sending strong political signals in terms of in terms of our need, in terms of to the industry, but also to through cooperation with the European Union, which in a European context also has an important role to play when it comes to stimulating production and sending the right demand signal. So we are doing all these things. I agree with you that they're very, very important. And that's why issues that perhaps before we would have treated as a little bit more technical or tactical or, or certainly not deserving of the prime time political messages, now we're putting in front and center. And I think that's the right thing to do because ultimately uh, that's what this work shows that for years we had our our industrial production uh, basically shifted away from from providing the the type of the mass and the scale that we need in this kind of conflict so we need to uh we need to rethink that entire system in a way and that's not not easy nor quick nor cheap but i think we are we are very much cognizant and taking concrete steps yeah i, I just want to add a couple of points on the part of your question andrew about the length of the war. Look, I think the first thing that's really important to say again, I, what I think is a sober and clear-eyed perspective is that this is a real war. This is not just a crisis to be managed that is small. Um, there are obvious strategic implications for Ukraine, but as we've already discussed, there are also implications for the NATO Euro-Atlantic security order and the international rules-based order. When and how the war ends is really, really difficult to predict. But I, I, I do know that when and how the war ends are critically important. Um, or the peace may not be durable, or it may not even be a peace at all. War may come again if the peace is inconclusive, if this war is not decisively 
concluded. And when war comes again, it may not be limited to Ukraine. It could be in Ukraine again, resumptive for the third time, or it could be in fact uh, broader in its scope. But overall, this is really important, I think, to us and to everyone. I mean, again, these more than 50 nations now supporting Ukraine in their self-defense, because this is very much understood at the strategic level to be an assault on the international rules-based order. Jim, do you have one you want to throw in? Or, I mean, we would be remiss if we um, ended this podcast without talking about the role of intelligence. I don't know if you want to jump in with anything else, or do you want to go there, Jim? Uh, well, no, I, I'll leave the intel side to you, although I will say I was very happy when NATO made that an ASG level job. Uh, it was debated very much. And uh, and so seeing David, it makes me very happy uh, that this continuing and this reached some some prominence. And I will tell you, in 2014, uh, we were absolutely surprised by that uh, invasion of Crimea. I was there at NATO. I was there with the defense ministerial. Uh, when the rumor swept the room that the Russians had gone into Crimea. Uh, and so uh, it, our intelligence uh, was not present in the room uh, when that wouldn't that surprise the section. So I'm glad, David, that you're there. And I think NATO has a better intelligence uh, awareness uh, than it had back in 2014. So um, only thing I would ask is uh, before we get to intel, because I know, Andrea, that's an important point is uh, I know another, as always in these ministerials, defense planning is a key part of it. Uh, like Benedetta said, this isn't, defense planning is also one of those technical things that no, most people don't know much about, but it's critical uh, to make the alliance go. Uh, it sounds like ministerial guidance is being discussed and, and, and some other things like that to help implement uh, Lisbon. But let me ask, uh, what will what what will be some of the new things that, nat that nations will be asked to do through the defense planning process? Uh, are we going to see some big changes? Are uh, uh, allies in for a, uh, a, a a new round of defense planning that will be different from the old? Or or uh, it sounds like it from what the section said, but I don't know. Are there some highlights you want to give us, and then we can talk intel? Maybe I'll talk. I'll put in 30 seconds on the on the political guidance on NATO defense planning. Um, this is a, this is a really key document and one that it's difficult to make very interesting for the outside world, of course, uh, because because of its classified and technical nature. But it, it is really uh, central to how NATO thinks about collective defense. Uh, and now it's able to do collective defense, right? By assigning different capability targets to different to different countries, and then pulling to and then demonstrating once again that we are greater than some of our parts as an alliance. So it's 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 quite as, important. As long as nations meet their capability goals. But anyway, go ahead. No comment. Uh, no, I'm joking. Well, this this guidance is the first one. Uh, it's been updated. Last time this was done was 2019. So it's been a couple of years. Um, in the meantime, many things have happened, including, of course, Russia's brutal war aggression against Ukraine. A new strategic concept was adopted. We have new military concept. We have a, a new decisions in Madrid in terms of setting a new baseline for our deterrence and defense. So because of all of that, I would say, yes, it's quite significant. The changes are quite significant. There is a much higher level of ambition for NATO defense planning. Oh, good. Good. Yes, I think so it's, it's not, excellent news. And, and that is that's a shock because it's hard to change the level of ambition. So yeah, good. I think that, and I think that's the, the point. The point is again, I without giving too much details, but the, the point is we are 
we, we are shifting back and renewing our focus on how to do collective defense. Uh, of course, NATO will retain the ability to, uh, to conduct, sustain uh, multilateral crisis management operations, but setting a renewed focus on collective defense has defense planning uh, implications that are quite, I think they're quite serious, and they, they include more, more ambitious de development of NATO capability targets. So I think that uh, this is not a surprise. It is very much in line with the with the concept that we with the military concept we have agreed over the last couple of years with the new strategic concept it's all about matching that level of ambition and that military sense of direction with concrete objectives that each and every ally can meet uh to bring to the to bring to bear uh, our collective defense. So yeah, so you will see more more heavy combat forces, enhanced air and missile defenses, stronger cyber defenses and logistics. All of these are part of the of what is being discussed and will be agreed uh, at the ministerial. Great. Oh, good. So they can agree it at the ministerial. So this is it's done. They just need the holy water thrown on it. Well, that's excellent. All right, Dave. Um, if I wanted to, I, you know, we definitely need to take advantage of having you here just to talk a little bit about the intel piece of all of this. And obviously, the role of U.S. intel in this war has been really critical, um, not only in giving advanced warning of the invasion, but obviously continued to support to Ukraine throughout the war. Um, but I think there's a lot of questions about what NATO's role in all of that is. And I'm, I mean, this is really just an opportunity, you know, to hear more from you about what your role at NATO is um, and uh, developments that may be on the horizon to enhance NATO's intelligence um, capabilities moving forward. Such as the satellites. So, so, look, I think a few things to say on this. Um, my role as the Assistant Secretary General for Intelligence and Security is to be the strategic leader of the NATO intelligence enterprise and then the leader of all of the operations that we do here for intelligence and security within the headquarters. Um, look, I'm a little biased, but I think intelligence and security are always critical uh, in broad terms within national security, but especially here within this alliance. Um, in simple terms, I do three things. Uh, through all this work. One is to be sure that we have the best security possible, because to be frank, there's no point in making better decisions informed by better intelligence if all of that just goes right out to the adversary. The second thing is to be sure that all allies get at the same time, the same intelligence driven insights and advice. And then finally, to work to constantly improve that level of knowledge and the quality of the work that's done across the enterprise. It's been seven years since the Warsaw Summit. I mean, to one of Jim's points from earlier in this discussion. And at the Warsaw Summit in 2016, my post was created, the division was brought together, and this concept of an enterprise was first conceived. And, and I would tell you, there's a lot to be proud of now. I mean, the, the entire enterprise was really ready for this moment in 2022 uh, when Russia reinvaded Ukraine. I think most people know that we have 30 allies within the alliance and hopefully we'll soon have 32. But I think that what most people don't know is from those 32 nations, we have between 80 and 85 intelligence and security services. They all contribute personnel and intelligence information and security expertise. There's really an incredible amount of intelligence sharing, again, in information and in personnel across the alliance. The SecGen has said increasingly 
that the alliance was really well warned about this impending war through much of 2021 and then into early 2022. And they continue to be very well informed, uh, again, sadly, as the war continues. Um, on the role of U.S. intelligence, look, the U.S. is a major contributor to NATO, to collective security, not just in the form of military power, but also in the form of intelligence and security power. Um, I, I say it often, I'll say it here also, I think the decisions that the Biden administration made, the president, the DNI, the heads of our agencies in the U.S. to publicly release the intelligence that they did about the potential for the war to come, um, the Brits with the Quislings, potentially that the Russians would install the you know, Ukrainians that would make the government more amenable to Moscow, the fact that they might bring uh, Russians in, the existence of kill lists, and then also from the US, the possibility of a false flag Russian operation to trigger the war um, and give some, hopefully from a Russian perspective, plausible deniability when they then invaded but would come in ostensibly and support the separatists um, in the east of Ukraine, I think. Really, really an amazingly bold and important and potentially risky decision. And I just say finally there, I think a lot of people are used to intelligence professionals talking about risks to sources and methods when they talk about boldness and risk when we choose to make disclosures. But I mean, think about the political risk in that also. I mean, I, I think I think you can you can understand that look, they could have released the intelligence and, and been absolutely correct on what they released. And then Putin changes his mind as a result. And, and what would be the public debate, I'm certain, would have been, well, the U.S. had it wrong. And I think the U.S. would know that that wasn't true, but you're not gonna, you're not gonna have that argument public. You're not gonna make that case. And this is why I say, I think politically, very, very brave, because even in success, it could have been characterized as a failure. But I think you see, again, one of the strategic mistakes made by the Russians and, and by Putin in particular is the key decider here. You're, much of the plan, as you saw it unfold in reality, was released in those intelligence disclosures. And yet they proceeded to execute a plan that was ill-conceived and pretty well understood, even in the public domain. And so I think huge, huge impact for these for these decisions to release the intelligence in that way but but again i mean i don't want that to overshadow the first part which is that i think what you're seeing here really is um is what it looks like when 75 to 80 services from 30 nations 32 nations contribute all around a common cause on a sustained basis at a very high level there should be nothing that we cannot understand uh, when those services choose to work together in the way that they have i mean it's just an incredible time to be here and serve in this capacity. Yeah, no, that that is is wonderful. And I think your point about the risk is really an important one, but also I think then the flip side and probably what was behind the willingness to be more forward leaning is kind of this recognition that we're constantly ceding the initiative, ceding the information domain to Russia. I mean, I mean, just think of the you know, the their violation of the INF treaty and other things. And when the United States knows things, I think this administration really did a lot of deep thinking before they came into office about how they might be able to be a little bit more proactive for the good of the alliance. So it, I mean, it's been it's been amazing to watch. 
I think I know we're just about time. So maybe we can have one final speed question, which is expectations for the summit this summer. Um, what should we be looking for? What are going to be the key themes? Um, any kind of bigger announcements that we can be anticipating? I know you can't get ahead of, 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 of the of the process, but um, just kind of shape our expectations a little bit for what we can expect. Sure, I'll I'll try to be very very telegraphic. And again, no, I don't think big surprises. I don't think I will say anything that will surprise you. Uh, it's going to be about how do we maintain and increase and enhance support to, to, for Ukraine. That's, to me, a no-brainer that will continue to dominate, as it should, the political discussion. Uh, it is gonna be, it's going to be about how we are delivering on those significant, I would say, historic decisions that we took when it comes to adapting our deterrence and defense posture in Madrid. So here it's about the show and tell. Yes, we have agreed all this, but here is what we have done in a year. And I think there's going to be a lot of substantial progress. There already is uh, this ministerial. Uh, it's going to be continuing to keep a focus on resilience and the importance of resilience in a world of growing strategic competition. I think just as important in a world of growing strategic competition is not forgetting uh, to work more with our partners. So I, I expect partnership to continue to be an important theme in the summit. Um, what else do I expect? Of course, defense spending will be on the agenda and uh, we already talked about it a little bit, but the point here is how do we continue? How do we accelerate? How do we ramp up when it comes to uh, to investing in defense? And I think these will be all, uh, again, unsurprising topics for a NATO summit, but I think we would be remiss if we didn't deal with all of this. Plus, the ones that we haven't forgotten, and again, this is a point David made before, it's really important. We are we are not forgetting that we are in a complex world of strategic competition. We're not just focusing on one threat, one theater, one domain. So we're also working uh, to deliver in the areas of innovation, in the areas of climate change and security, and in the area of energy uh, security, among others. Before I turn it over to you, Dave, for you to add, um, Bendetta, how do you expect the issue of um, NATO membership for Ukraine to be managed and navigated in the summit? Or if Dave wants to jump on that one, he can. <laughs> well, I would say the following, that what I expect, and we'll see, of course, is that, uh, and allies have been very consistent on this. And, and if, you, if I take the last, uh, the new strategic concept, I think the message there remains, remains clear. Uh, uh, NATO's door, NATO's open door policy remains um, central to the way the alliance, to the way the alliance operate. NATO's door remains open. Uh, the decisions taken in Bucharest in 2008 were reaffirmed with respect to membership for Ukraine and Georgia. So all of that we have to go on. I also think that there will be uh, an important emphasis on the fact that, in, in fact, our door has been open and the alliance has continued to, um, to grow over the last years. And of course, uh, and of course uh, that, that is in itself, I think, something important. Uh, but uh, I also think that we will make again and again the point, and I think the Secretary General has made it several times, that we will continue to have those political a political commitment, those are important. We also will focus on what is absolutely vital at the moment, and it is continuing to support Ukraine as a defense itself, because if there is not a sovereign viable state, 
Ukraine left, then there is nothing to talk about, right? So do we have to first and foremost commit to support Ukraine for as long as it takes so that it can retake territory and prevail as a sovereign nation. So these are, uh, I think, these, I think these will be more or less uh, some of the themes that I expect uh, to, to frame the discussion. I know we needed about another hour to get through all the issues because I recognize we didn't talk about China. We didn't talk about implications of Finland, Sweden, et cetera, et cetera. But we got in what we could. But Dave, I'm going to turn it over to you for the last word. Anything you want to say about the summit uh, or more broadly? Yeah, look, I'd just briefly add um, first on Ukraine, I think to pull together a couple of benefits points, it's really important to understand that there's a lot in between nothing and full membership. And what that means is that we need to keep growing our partnership with Ukraine and sustain that support in practical terms that we're providing them for the reasons that Benedetta touched on. So I really do agree. It's important that we take it step by step. And the first thing is to ensure that Ukraine prevails. Um, but I don't think we mentioned Finland and Sweden, except for you reminding. So I, I just say there, um, look, when I came here three and a half years ago, there were 28 members, now there are 30. Uh, this will be my last summit working for NATO. And I really hope that we're at 32 by the time I leave. Finland and Sweden joining NATO is important for Finland and Sweden, yes, but it's also really important for NATO also, and particularly for the Baltic countries. Because if you look at the map, I think you can understand that Finland and Sweden joining will fundamentally change the whole security situation in the Baltic region. And, and also going up into the high north. Finland and Sweden will really strengthen our presence in that part of the world as an alliance and in Europe generally. They bring a lot of capabilities, um, very advanced military capabilities, highly interoperable with us. They've fought alongside us uh, in a lot of NATO contingencies over the years. And I tell you, they are tremendous intelligence and security partners also. They bring a lot to the table in a lot of dimensions. So I think it'd be a huge win for the Alliance and for collective security for them to join. Well, this was really wonderful. Um, I know, like, as I just said, we probably could have gone on for another hour to get at some of these other issues, but I just really appreciate you both taking the time out of what I know are extraordinarily busy schedules at a really uh, critical time. Um, so thank you for doing that. Thank you for being so candid. We really appreciate it. And um, hopefully maybe we can check in after the summit or something along those lines um, just to continue some of this. I know our listeners appreciate it. So so thank you. Yeah, thank Thanks you very much. Go back to this uh, to the ministerial dinner. I'm sure you're missing it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks, Happy everyone. to speak with you both anytime. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.